Amen. Thanks for that, Jimmy. Well, if you do have your Bible, please do open up to Revelation 22, though we're looking at a very short prayer at the end of it. We're going to be doing, uh, looking at that prayer in context, so we'll be doing a wee bit of a run through certain chapters and parts of Revelation. As uh, Simon said at the beginning, over the summer Sunday evenings, we've been studying various prayers across Scripture to help us mature into a praying people. Simon started the series off back in June with a challenge that we would strive to become a people who call on the name of the Lord. Then from that point, we've looked on the Sunday evenings with a variety of different preachers at different genres of prayer, different passages, different prayers that teach us different types of prayer so that we can think of incorporating them into our prayer lives. We've looked at prayers of praise and worship from Exodus 15, for Samuel, for example. We looked at a prayer of blessing from Numbers chapter six. Remember, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine on you. We've looked at honest prayers, like Nehemiah's prayer, and considered what it means to be honest and real in our prayers before the Lord. We've looked at prayers of repentance from Psalm 51, Jonah chapter two. We've looked at the Lord's prayer to help us think about praying for kingdom priorities. And last week, Michael helped us with a prayer for spiritual strength from Ephesians chapter 3. This week, then, we draw this series to a conclusion for now by looking at the final prayer recorded for us in Scripture. I wonder if I hadn't come to this evening and I said to you, or I asked you, what's the last prayer recorded in the Bible? How quickly would you arrive at an answer? It's that prayer from verse 20 of Revelation 22, come Lord Jesus. And immediately that's striking. It's the last prayer of scripture, come Lord Jesus. Out of all the types of prayer we've considered in this series, I suspect that this genre of prayer, prayers for Christ to come, may well be the most neglected in our Christian prayer lives. I've said this before, that if the generation before us overemphasized teaching on the return of Christ, if that's possible, when and how it would happen, our current generation has underemphasized the return of Christ to the extent where we can often get so caught up in life that we forget we're supposed to be a people living with the hope of Christ's return burning brightly in our hearts. If there was a way to register how brightly that hope is burning in your heart this evening, I wonder what the register would show. It's challenging, isn't it? So this little prayer, come Lord Jesus, three little words, so small, yet this prayer has so much to teach us about another aspect of what it means to be a praying people. There ought to be a place in our prayer lives where we are regularly praying for the coming of Christ. And this evening, we're going to think about why that is. My plan for this evening is very simple. We're going to ask a what, a why, and a how of this little prayer. What is the prayer? Why do we struggle sometimes to pray this prayer? Because I'm sure inwardly you're like, yeah, I'd love that, but there's some stuff I'd love to happen before Christ comes. Let's Acknowledge that reality. Let's think about that together. And then how. So what is the prayer? Why 
might we struggle to pray it, and how can we perhaps get more focused on praying this prayer in a realistic way in our Christian lives from this point moving forward. So, first of all, what is the prayer? Very simply, this prayer, come Lord Jesus, is an expression of longing for Christ to come and establish his kingdom fully and to make everything right again in this broken world. That's what it is. It's an expression of longing. Lord, come and fix this broken world. To really see how this is an expression of longing, we need to understand the prayer within its context in the whole book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the record of a vision given to John the Apostle that was to be written down and sent to local churches. It's easy to forget the book is a letter. Four local churches to be written down to encourage them. The goal of the book is to encourage persecuted and struggling Christians, to encourage weary Christians to persevere in what can be a difficult world by reminding them of one single truth, that in the end, after all is said and done with the history of the universe, In the end, it will be the kingdom of God that will stand when all other earthly kingdoms have fallen. This is a vision to encourage a weary church to say, keep going, because you are a no fool's errand. In the end, with all the rising and fallings of kingdoms in this world, one day, they will all ultimately fall and there will be one kingdom left standing and that is the kingdom of God. You're on the right side if you're a Christian. Now there are so many symbols and images used in the book. I'm considering preaching it in the new year. I don't know if I'll be able to yet because it's challenging. But there are many symbols and images used in the book to communicate various truths. But one of the most vivid images at the climax of the book, is found in a contrast that is drawn between two cities. The cities are personified as women, and they represent two different groups of people or kingdoms in God's universe. The first city in chapters 17 and 18 is named Babylon. The city is personified as a seductive prostitute. In chapter 17, verse 5, we read, On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So it's, it's kind of this picture of this prostitute woman, but it's a city, it's people. The name Babylon, if you know your Bible at all, finds its roots in the Old Testament, in the Tower of Babel. It's the same word. It's the Tower of Babylon, the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 11, the people gathered together and said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a tower and make our way up to heaven. 
Babylon in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation represents this present evil age as it seeks to live without God. It is this idea of a city of people who have said we are declaring rebellion against God. It's the city where everyone just does their own thing. It is this sort of climate where you say let's make a name for ourselves and it is opposed to the kingdom of God. So it's this earthly spirit where you say, there is no God, there is no absolute morality, I'll just do my own thing, make up my own rules. That's the spirit of Babylon. It's the city opposed to the kingdom of God. In chapter 17, verse 14, we read, they will make war on the Lamb, a picture of Jesus Christ. And the Lamb will conquer them, for he's Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. But then, after this portrait of Babylon, this idea of the world living in all its rebellion against God, in chapter 18, a great announcement is made in the book of Revelation that depicts the end of Babylon. In chapter 18, we read, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So this is a picture in the book of Revelation of the day when this present evil age will finally come to a close. The city This world in rebellion against God and all who are part of it, in the end, will fall, will be no more, will be crushed, will be done away with. That is this sort of culminating announcement in the book of Revelation because, you see, it is Babylon that has been persecuting and oppressing the church. And so this announcement to the saints in Revelation, Babylon's fallen, it's no more would have been incredible because Babylon looks like it will never fall, but it will. Contrasted to the city of Babylon then is another city called the New Jerusalem. And this city is personified not as a prostitute, but as a bride. In chapter 21, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God." So now then, through Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, you get this beautiful description of the second city, the New Jerusalem, the bride. And it's stunning. (laughs) No preacher, no Christian can expound the fullness of the beauty of what is depicted in Revelation chapter 22. We can try, and it is beautiful. In chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, we learn that this this city is a garden city, which again blows your mind because you're like, a city is not typically a garden, but that's the book of Revelation. This is how images are used to paint a portrait, to capture our imagination. So this city, the New Jerusalem, is a garden city, 
It's a picture of the Garden of Eden restored, which is so satisfying. The Bible starts in the Garden of Eden and ends back with Eden restored, people dwelling with God. Verse 1, we read that a river flows through this garden city. This is 22, verse 1, just as a river flowed through the Garden of Eden. The river of life feeds the tree of life, the same tree that was in the middle of the Garden of Eden, only now it's multiplied. This tree is on both sides of the river. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. The key about this vision, though, is where the river flows from. In verse 1, we're told that the river down this garden city flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. The Lamb, as I said, represents Jesus, the one who died to give us life. Our life is sustained forever by God in the new heavens and new earth in this city. We never become immortal in ourselves. We're immortal because we're sustained. Our life is sustained by God and the Lamb. Verse 3 tells us that no longer will there be any curse. Now, what does that curse language make you think of? Genesis 3 and the fall. So in this city, the bride, the new Jerusalem, there will be no curse, no sin, All of sin and its ravaging effects will be removed forever from this city. In chapter 21, verse 7, we read that nothing unclean will ever enter it. That's why no person with their sin can enter it, because they'd pollute it, ruin it in a moment. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter that city, we're told at the end of chapter 21. In this city, because there is no sin and no curse, there's no suffering and no pain, death will be no more, there'll be no mourning or crying or pain anymore, no injustice, no famine, no war, no fighting, no mental health conditions, no relational divisions, no stress, no falling out, no corruption, no insecurity, no fear of man, no sexual immorality, no greed, no selfishness, no threats. In Genesis 3.24, the way into Eden was blocked so humanity could not return to live in the immediate presence of God in that temple garden. But in the new Eden, in verse 4, we're told all those in this city, they'll see his face. You know, sometimes my wee daughter, Grace, says, Daddy, why can't we see God? It's lovely to be able to say, Now we see by faith, but one day faith will give way to sight. She'll just say, okay. Verse 4, we're told they'll see his face. His name will be on their forehead. That is just stunning imagery in the book. God owns these ones. Night will be no more. Night. All the scariness of darkness, the symbolism of darkness and sin. Then all the visions of the book come to an end with these words that really summarize the hope of the book of Revelation 22 verse 5. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So imagine persecuted Christians in the first century under the persecution and oppression of the empire feeling so weak, feeling that they could be stamped out. 
And here's a vision to recapture their imaginations to say, in the end, Rome will fall. All modern-day Romes, they will fall. But the kingdom of God and those who are part of it, in the end, they'll be standing and they'll reign with the Lamb forever and ever. So keep going. What a beautiful vision. Then through the rest of the chapter, we're given a series of instructions about the status of the words given in the book of Revelation. Verse 6, we're told the words are trustworthy and true. Verse 7, we're told that the words of the book are to be kept and we're to live in light of them. Verses 10 to 11, we're told that these are to be read and not sealed up. Then you'll notice in verse 12 and verse 20, a section that starts and ends with Jesus saying, I am coming soon. And in that section, he urges us as his church to be ready, to live with anticipation, with a sense of expectation. And then, after verse, in verse 20, we get our prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So you can see, when you run through that hope that climaxes with the contrast between Babylon's fall and the enduring beauty of the new Jerusalem, the bride, you can see how for a church squeezed and under pressure and persecuted, when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, they'll say, yes, come, Lord Jesus. Rescue us from this present age of brokenness and persecution. This prayer is an expression of longing that Jesus would come, bring an end to all brokenness, and establish his new city where all evil will be eradicated and we will dwell and reign with him forever. As I said, you can imagine how a persecuted church covered in difficulty would echo a strong amen to this prayer. A comfortable church might not do so. Boy, that's challenging, isn't it? See, this prayer at the end of the book of Revelation stands as a test for us. Right at the end of the Bible, Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon. And the question that we're to ask of ourselves is do we respond to Jesus' statement, I'm coming soon, with a strong, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Do we pray this prayer? Do we long for Christ's return? Or do we sort of inwardly hope that he'll hold off? And that brings me to the second question I want to ask of the prayer. That's what the prayer is, an expression of longing. But second, I want to ask now, moving from the what to the why, why do we struggle sometimes to pray this kind of prayer? Because when you hear the unpacking of what this prayer is, you assume that it's a prayer that every Christian would want to pray. Yet I do wonder if there is ever a part of us that does sort of hope Christ will hold off from coming. Now, there might be noble reasons for this, noble reasons, like a concern for the unsaved. That certainly enters my mind. We'd love to see them come to the Lord, and we know that when Christ returns, it will be too late. So we we want the Lord to tarry so that they have a chance still to get saved. And I say that that can be a noble desire, because in 2 Peter 3, 9, when people were saying, well, where is this coming of the Lord? 
Peter responds and says, the Lord is not slow, but he's patient, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there can be something noble in our hearts when we long for others to reach repentance before that day. Peter said, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Don't accuse the Lord ever of being slow, oh little human being. But let's be honest for others, in our own hearts, sometimes our reasons may not be so noble for wanting Christ to hold off from coming. In fact, the reasons might actually suggest that you've made yourself a bit too at home in this present evil age. And to illustrate what I mean, I want to take you back to a movie that I watched when I was younger called Hook. Some of you will have watched it, some of you might not have, so I'll do my best to explain why I feel that this might be helpful for us at this moment. The movie Hook was a modern-day spin on the Peter Pan story. The pirate Captain Hook kidnaps a boy called Jack, who in the movie is actually Peter Pan's son. Captain Hook kidnaps Jack from the real world, and he takes him to Neverland. Jack, however, keeps trying to escape. He wants to go home. So Hook devises a plan to give Jack such a good time in Neverland that he'll not want to go home. He convinces him, his plan is to convince Jack that Neverland actually is his home. So Hook dresses him in pirate clothes so that he can be like the pirates in Neverland. He gives him the best food. He gives him the best entertainment. And eventually, Hook's plan works. Young Jack starts to feel so at home in Neverland that he starts to forget that it's not actually his real home. And eventually, Peter Pan comes flying in to rescue young Jack, and he comes flying in, and he says, Jack, it's time to come home. And what does Jack say? I don't want to. This is home. The chance to go home presented itself, and he didn't want to go home because he was now so at home in Neverland. Sometimes, The seduction of our Neverland, Babylon, can be so alluring. Babylon can be so entertaining. We can get so at home that we can forget that Babylon is not our true home. TV programs pump into us the values of this age. Satan uses everything to try and lull us to sleep. Adverts tell us we need this next thing to be happy. We entertain ourselves into a stupor. And the thought of going home starts to fade completely. We get to at home in this world and we can start to think there's more I'd like to enjoy. I don't want Christ to come now because I want to get married or I want to have children. I want to see my children do this or that or my grandchildren do this or that. I want to travel. I want to make money. His coming would ruin my plans. Have you ever thought like that? You've never articulated it, but has that seed ever been in your heart? 
We must fight to remember we are the people of the bride city. We are the bride city. We are the people of the new Jerusalem. This present evil age and all its allurements is not our true home. We are exiles here on a mission to be disciples and to make disciples. And of course there are things we're given to enjoy from God in this world. Good things, yes. But let's remember, every good thing we enjoy this world is merely a faint shadow of a far greater reality. C.S. Lewis says, We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. We need to hear the call of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. Come out of Babylon, my people, lest you take part in her sins and share in her plagues. Why do we struggle to pray this prayer? I would suggest it's because we've made ourselves too at home in Neverland, in Babylon. We've forgotten this is not our true home. And we forget that when Christ comes, everything will be far, far better. Whatever you think you would miss, it is nothing to what you will gain. That's why I think sometimes we can struggle to pray this prayer. So third question we need to ask after the what is it? Why do we struggle to pray with it? We need to ask how can we fix this problem? How can we get more focused on praying this prayer with genuine longing? I have three uh, points here to help you with this. Number one, if you want to become one who prays this, come Lord Jesus, and expresses this longing. First, you've got to seek to keep renewing your mind with Scripture. That is my first point, because that is what jumped into my mind when I thought of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Listen, if your mind is being constantly fed with the culture and tone and tenure of Babylon, guess what's going to shape you? Babylonian culture, this present age. But if your mind is being renewed with Scripture continually, then you will start to think more of the kingdom. And you will start to long for your true home. In the context of Romans 12, Paul means renewing your mind. He means take all the glorious truths of the gospel that he'd been speaking about in the first 11 chapters of that book, appropriate them to your mind continually. Feed your mind with Scripture so that the reality of Scripture forms your mind more than the culture of this world. That is a fight of epic proportions because even just just driving down the Omer Road this evening, you see billboards here and advertisements there and, and Babylon's just saying, oh, isn't this the life? This is the life. You know, in the book of Revelation, there's a long discussion Is it really to try and help people battle 
persecution? Or is it more to help them wake up to the seduction of, of Babylon? Is it the, are they really struggling because of the persecution? Or is it the, the Roman machine looks so impressive, so powerful, the pantheon of gods looks so great, all the, the do whatever you want, morally speaking, it's so seductive that it was pulling the church in. And Revelation is written to awaken them and say, don't be seduced by that prostitute Babylon. You're the bride. You've got a better story. Look at the end of Babylon. Look at the end of the bridal city. It's powerful. So if you're not going to be seduced, you've got to keep renewing your mind with Scripture. Just see it like, you know, you wouldn't... I remember my mom did this once. She put diesel in my dad's petrol car before, you know, the adjusted the size of things. <laughs> I remember my dad going, oh, I'll go into that anyway. But... um. You know, as Christians, we don't put diesel into a petrol car. You, you don't put the world into your mind all the time. It'll wreck you. You've got to keep pumping Scripture in, whatever way works. So you've got to keep renewing your mind with Scripture. Second, remember the question we're asking? How do we get more focused on praying, come Lord Jesus, with genuine longing? Keep renewing your mind with Scripture. Second, this is really important. Seek to have a balanced view of how you're to live in this world as a Christian. You see, there are good things that we're supposed to enjoy. And yet, we're also to, to, to recognize that this is not our final home. So what do we do? Well, I find Jeremiah's instructions to the exiles in literal Babylon in the Old Testament very helpful. In the time of Jeremiah's writing, God's people had sinned against God and so the Babylonian empire a genuine, real, literal empire, invaded Israel and took many of the Israelites out of their land into exile as slaves and servants in Babylon. False prophets in Israel, in the city of Babylon, were saying to the Israelites, you're only going to be here a wee while. Sit tight, you'll be back in Israel in no time. But Jeremiah wrote a letter to the exiles, and you can read this letter in Jeremiah 28, 29, and he explains, no, you're going to be here for some time, years, 70 years. You're going to have to figure out how to do life as a settled exile whilst not forgetting your true home. How relevant is that to us? He told them, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, work hard. And then he said in chapter 29, verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. This is God speaking through his prophet. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. So how are we to live as settled exiles without forgetting our true home? Well, I think those are really good instructions. As Christians, we're to be model citizens. In your workplace this week, you're to be a model worker. I know you, you teachers are getting ready to go back and you enjoy those lovely holidays, but you're probably feeling the weight of it right now. You've got to try to be a Christian. Be the best Christian you can be in your workplace. Be a witness, as we were thinking about in the book of Colossians. You get married. You hang out with your friends. You... You enjoy your single life. You settle down. 
but you don't ever go native and become Babylonian. You always remember, this is not my true home. How better to express this than Psalm 137? Do you remember that lovely Psalm? I don't, can't remember who the person was that wrote the song. By the rivers of Babylon. What did they say? We sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. There our tormentors asked us a song, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But they had to settle. And then what do they write? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, so I'm going to have some joys in Babylon as an exile. Yes, that's okay. But I have to remember, I'm still in exile. And I want to go home. So that when you hear someone say, Jesus is coming soon, you say, come Lord Jesus. You're not asleep in Babylon. So this means we work, we contribute to the welfare of our city. It gives us a great vision for meaningful work. We live out kingdom values where we are. We seek to be salt and light for the kingdom. We, we share our hope. We talk about our homeland. You learn to live a balanced life in this world as a settled exile. Think about that. The third way then we can pray this prayer with more longing is I think very simply to practice thinking on heavenly realities. This is Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So I think this is something we should practice. Think on the contrast between the end of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18 and the glorious hope of the garden city in Revelation 21 and 22. Paul certainly practiced this. For in Philippians 3.19, he spoke of the enemies of the cross of Christ saying, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. If you're feeling your bodily aches and pains at the moment, take heart. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to transform your weary, weak body so that it will be like his glorious body. Imagine no aches, no pains, no walking sticks, no coughing, no... Anxiety, no, whatever it is. What a hope. Ponder every day the end of Babylon and the end of the new Jerusalem. All will be made right when Christ appears. You will not wish for one second that you would have had more time in Babylon. Everything will be better. If. This is a big if. You're a Christian. If you're in Christ, everything will be better. If you are not a Christian this evening, everything will definitely not be better. In fact, everything will be an infinite, infinite times worse. 
In chapter 22, 14, we're told the only ones who can enter the new Jerusalem are those who have washed their robes. They have the right to the tree of life. For those who don't, who are not Christians, who do not have Jesus, verse 15, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And perhaps one of the most awful things will be those people will always wish they were in heaven. Right now, tonight, You can receive Christ, have your sins washed away, and you can have access into the city of God. You can come out of Babylon and come in to the new Jerusalem through Christ. So don't be one of those who wastes this moment of grace. For those washed in Christ, who have put their faith in Jesus, who've repented of their sins, who've given their lives to him. In Revelation chapter 7, 17, we read of their end. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I think there's a shift there from the lamb's shepherding, guiding them to streams of living water to the the God, the Father, the father who wipes the tears of brokenness from his people's eyes. So, together this week, and in light of all the genres of prayer we've been thinking about these summer Sunday evenings, let me encourage you to start adding into your prayer life these three little words. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot there this evening that is challenging. And there is a lot that stirs hope and longing. We think of our brothers and sisters and friends in places like Ukraine this evening where there's war. And one day when Christ comes, all wars will cease. There'll be no more war when we see gas prices rocketing and Russia burning off millions of pounds of gas every day because there's no one to sell it to, Lord, we see injustice, we see poverty, we see brokenness everywhere. And yet one day, Christ, you're gonna come, you're gonna fix this broken world. The first heavens, the first day, uh, the first heavens and earth will pass away. There will be a renovation and a renewal of this present age and all sin will be finally eradicated. There'll be no more curse. It's very hard for us, Father, to even really conceptualize this world without sin. No awkwardness with people because of histories. No divisions. We'll we'll gather around a throne and serve you and worship you and praise you and enjoy you. And Father, it's so lovely to think of the Lamb, your Son, being our shepherd, guiding us to streams of living water. And Father, I know there are some weary saints here this evening, and this is a vision for weary saints to give them renewed hope. None of us are sinking into death. We're marching on to glory. And Father, just pray that if there is anyone here or in the hearing of this, and they're listening and saying, I don't know if I'm going to have access to that that new Jerusalem city. I could be one of those outside. 
I pray that just now, by your spirit, you'd work on their hearts and that they would say, I want Jesus to wash me from my sin so that I can have access to that beautiful garden city and to the one who is at the center of it all, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, bury these truths deep and please help us not to forget so that we just fade away from this. If we need to repent of the sin of being too at home in Babylon, then guide us to do that this evening and bring us back again to the cross where we're made new. And lead us on, Lord, so that we would be a people who start with real longing. We start to pray, yes, Lord. Though we want to see our unsaved family and friends saved, yes, there are noble desires there, Lord, and we pray that you'd save them. But Lord, we know that when you come, justice will be finally satisfied and no one will question your justice because every one of us will be completely satisfied and we will see that you have done all things well, all things perfectly, and all things with absolute pure justice. We will all be satisfied. And so we thank you for these glorious realities and pray that they would shape us this week as we live our lives as settled exiles, trying to be a blessing, but never forgetting. We want to go home. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to sing this lovely hymn that reflects that hope of the higher throne that is above all. Let's stand and respond together.
And now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.